This week on the show, we have an interview with Jamie McParland of the Newburgh Public School District in Oregon. We're going to be getting to take an inside look at how they use BSD in various aspects of operations across their network, as well, of course, as bringing you the latest news and questions. So keep it tuned to BSD Now, the place to be, SD. Now, episode 131, BSD Behind the Chalkboard, recorded March 2nd, 2016. Hey, I'm your host, Chris Moore. And I'm Alan Jude. And we're glad to have you guys with us this week. We got another exciting episode. There's going to be a great interview you're going to want to stick around for. That should be fun. Mm-hmm. But of course, we got a lot of news to get to, and uh, this is kind of right on the eve of Asia BSD Con. So uh, definitely looking forward to that. Alan, I don't know. I'm ready to go get some noodles. How oh, about yes. you? Yes. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Which day do you arrive? Uh, I leave Monday, so I guess I arrive Tuesday in Japan. Same here. Tuesday afternoon. Which airport are you landing in now? Narita. Ah, I'm at Haneda. How do you manage that? I always end up going through Narita. Like, that's not even... Well, up until a couple of months ago, no U.S. airline was allowed to fly to Haneda. Oh. Air Canada only opened up two years ago. I actually would prefer to go to Narita because it's a little easier to get into the city. Sure. It takes about the same amount of time, really, but uh, Narita's farther away, but it's a faster train. Yeah, yeah, the train's real easy, too. Yeah, like, exactly. Get on it and just take a nap for half an hour. Right, whereas... By that point, I'm ready. Yeah, whereas coming from Haneda, you get on, like, regular commuter trains, mm-hmm. and so you're not guaranteed a seat, and there's no luggage area. Oh, you man. Know? Probably a lot of stops in between, right? Yeah, and I, you had to, we had to switch trains, like, twice, I think. Oh, no, so it wasn't. Okay, it wasn't terrible. Have that. <laughs> yeah. Usually, at that point, I'm so tired and jet-lagged. Yes. It's, like, all I can do just to take the one or two trains to get to my hotel. Right, and... Uh, you know, that's a, I like Narita, but uh, Air Canada only runs Narita during the summer now, not during the winter. Sure. They're like, oh, you can just go to Narita. <laughs> like, so oh. I saw we didn't get lucky with the hotel this year, too. Like the speakers, or well, mm-hmm. at least uh, Drew and John that I talked to are at a different hotel now. Ah. So they booked them. Uh, that's a couple blocks down yep. from where we're going to be at. But still, yeah, it'll work out. Where are you? Uh, at the Villa Fontaine. Okay, that's where I'm in. Yep. Yeah, same place as you. Oh, yeah. Uh, we booked around the same time. Oh, yeah. Like I booked in October. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I hope the reason the speakers aren't there is because a bunch of us regulars took off. <laughs> that's probably what happened, right? We were all thinking, ooh, that's where the speakers were last year. We're going to book ahead Well, they of weren't time. there last year because they, oh, it was so late last right. year. It was, is that, I wonder if that's what happened again this year. Probably. Then. Yeah, judging by everything was like two weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> oh, anyway, yep. it's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, we'll yes. have a lot of stories to bring you mm-hmm. when we get back. Hopefully, a bunch of I have new to, interviews. Like, take notes during it to remember all oh, the cool I stories. Oh, yeah. You know, I should just invest, just just go out and buy a little audio recorder like you have, yes. so I can just sit and put that down and then transcribe it later or yep. whatever, but it'll be fun. There's going to be a lot of good stuff. Definitely check it out online mm-hmm. if there's any live feeds or streams. Yes, there, uh, live con shows up. The main AJBSD con will definitely be streamed, and I'm pretty sure the Beehive con will be, and maybe even the Dev Summit. I'm not sure about that. Oh, okay. But Definitely, AJBSDCon will be screamed by Stale Engine, uh, and I think Beehive. Uh, yes, I will make sure BeehiveCon happens, even though I will be in a different room for part of it, because mm-hmm. I'm taking uh, George Neville Neal's uh, D-Trace tutorial. 
Oh, you'll pop in to get some food, though. Yes, well, yeah. I, I did help pay for the food. So. so you need to at least get a plate. <laughs> yes. And it'll probably be good, too. Well, yes. so. well it's nice thing is a bento box, so I can take it with me if I have to. There you go. Uh, there you go. But yes, uh, it, we're looking forward to that a lot. Oh, yeah, very much so. Not the flight so much, although I was a little smarter this year. I didn't go through Atlanta. So the 14-hour uh, flight is going to be only 11 hours. So I'm going to Minneapolis first. So uh, um, so you take a small hop flight. and then – okay. Yeah. I luckily yeah, have like, a direct flight. Uh, well, I got to take a hop no matter where I go. Right. Right? Knoxville doesn't fly right, direct yes. to many places. Well, yes, <laughs> uh, I, I can't fly from Hamilton. I, I, yeah, I have to fly Hamilton to Calgary and then – get on a plane to tokyo which probably would actually be another small hop to vancouver and then to mm -hmm. tokyo but luckily but either way looking forward to mm -hmm. it if you're going to be out there come say hi to alan and i it'll be a lot of fun we'll be uh, happy to talk to you about all kinds of cool bsd stuff and maybe we'll pull you aside and do an interview if you're working mm -hmm. on something because uh we gotta get a lot of those so of course uh, we should probably get into the headline so speaking of conferences what yes. is this we have the bsd can uh, list of talks has yes. been announced so so they haven't we quite, can now tease you with that yeah uh they haven't quite managed to actually build a schedule out of it yet uh but they have the list of talks they've accepted and they're just trying to figure out how to build a schedule out of it such that you know, uh, no matter what your interest is, there will always be stuff for you to go do uh, and try to avoid putting two talks that would be of interest to mostly the same people at the same time, uh, okay. which I can tell you is not an easy thing to do. Sure. <laughs> but, well, that's one of those things. Uh, to some degree, you're always going to lose that battle, right? Yes. There's just a lot of really good talks. Mm -hmm. Some of them are just going to have to go head to head. Yes. Hey, that's what video recordings are for. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, BSD can use it as a good job of having kind of like a, a sysadmin track and a developer track. Uh, now, I now fall into both of those categories and have this problem. But uh, in sure. general, uh, we look forward to seeing how uh, they manage to juggle this list of amazing talks. Do you uh, want to run through them real quick yeah. and tease everyone? There's uh, quite a few. Uh, Kirk McCusick will be giving a brief history of the BSD fast file system. Mm -hmm. If you've never heard uh, one of Kirk's history's talks, you must absolutely see this. Uh, if you've only seen some of the other ones, like I saw, I think that MeetBSD did the history of uh, TCP IP. Uh, well, you know, if you've seen one of the other ones, you definitely already are planning to go to this one. Uh, sure. And uh, even if you've already s heard the history of the fast file system, the stories are so great, you will hear it again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm sure that room will be very, very full. Oh, yeah. Uh, George Neville Neal will be giving his uh, an inside so, look at FreeBSD with Dtrace, which is a tutorial. It's uh, a full day one. Yes. So uh, at Asia, it's also a full day, but it's split across two days. Uh, mm -hmm. So you do half the full day one day and half the full day the other day, okay. uh, which I imagine had to do with George having things to do. <laughs> sure. Uh, and the Dev Summit and the Vendor Summit and so on. Uh, but yes, so if you are busy and or didn't make it to Tokyo, you'll be able to get that uh, in Canada. Um, Werner Losh will be giving a walkthrough of CAM, which is the uh, basically how disks work in, in FreeBSD. So mm -hmm. that will be, uh, I think I will have to go to that one and learn a bit more about it because I've uh, <laughs> been working in related places for a while and really would like to know what was going on there. So definitely bone up on that. Mm -hmm. Hey, it looks like next we got Aaron Poffenberger, who we interviewed uh, from down in Texas, mm -hmm. going to be doing an amateur radio and SDR boff as well. Yes, if you want to do uh, learn about software-defined radios or whatever, uh, the boffs are usually during lunchtime, but without the schedule, we don't know for sure. But uh, sure. it's definitely worth, uh, you know, if 
if you're going to grab your lunch and go sit somewhere, you might as well uh, join in a discussion yeah. about uh, something you're interested in or learn something. To be honest, you're going to be doing that anyway. You're going to exactly. be sitting with other developers <laughs> talking. Just make it official. Yep. All right, so who's next? We got Rake Flutter is going to be doing an OpenFlow implementation for OpenBSD. Yes, so uh, interesting. OpenFlow is is an open source version of Cisco's thing for uh, analyzing the traffic as it goes through your router. So mm -hmm. that obviously makes a lot of sense there. Um, George Rosamund, who's I think that's the NYC bug guy, uh, he's yep. giving yep. Uh, Beyond Model Cultures, uh, which I'm guessing is related to his Tor diversity project, that's and trying what to get, I would assume, uh, and maybe not just Tor, but you know, model cultures are bad in everything, so mm -hmm. fix that. Um, then Peter Hessler is giving a talk about the bidirectional forwarding detection or BFD implementation for OpenBSD. Mm. Uh, so this is more accurately detecting when you have two different routes if one of them goes down and routing around it. Uh, so that sure. seems really interesting if you're uh, doing any kind of network engineering type stuff. Um, Who's this next guy? I have no idea. Dude. Never heard of him. Booting from encrypted disks on FreeBSD. Yes. So I, this will be the same talk you're giving me in Tokyo, I assume, right? Uh, yes, although hopefully by the time BSD can rolls around, it also features a whole chunk of the talk about UEFI instead of only okay. BIOS. Okay. So I'm, I'm hoping that it'll be quite a bit different by the time uh, BSD can rolls around. By the way, were you going to commit that stuff before you do your talk in Tokyo or at least get it? Uh, I'm hoping the talk in Tokyo gets me a couple people to review it so I can commit it. Okay. Okay. Cool. Um, yes. And then uh, Peter Hanstein, uh, as usual, runs his PF tutorial. If you uh, mm -hmm. want to learn how to use PF, no matter which of the BSDs you're using it on, uh, you should definitely check that out. It's a great thing to do on one of the days before the conference because okay. uh, as we'll mention i guess uh even if you're only coming for the regular talk part of bsd can you want to be there by tuesday night for the goat boff uh, which is you know where groff comes out to the uh the local pub that's nearest the, the venue and uh, everybody just meets up and hangs out and so uh since you're gonna want to be there on tuesday night for that you might as well uh you know slot yourself in for the tutorials and uh, learn something while you're there Okay. We got next uh, Marius uh, Zaborski. Yes, Marius. Cas Capsicum and Casper. Yes, so Capsicum like is the, uh, the you know, sandboxing framework, and Casper is the daemon that handles stuff that you can't normally do in a sandbox. Sure. So uh, it handles, like, DNS resolution and stuff, because if you're in the sandbox and we don't allow you to make connections out to the network, how are you going to look up DNS or mm -hmm. things like that? Um, yeah. And then... Uh, Paul Shestov, or Shestek, uh, a couple of years ago, he gave a talk about moving from Linux to FreeBSD. Sure. Uh, he's giving an updated version of that called Case Study, Linux to FreeBSD to FreeBSD, which I'm guessing is about... VM? Uh, well, I imagine it's more after they transition to FreeBSD, now they need to move from, you know, FreeBSD 8 or whatever up to 10 mm -hmm. or something. Okay. So... It's going to be a nested BSD thing with Beehive and whatnot. But uh, I don't actually know. We'll have to, once the uh, schedule goes up, there will be summaries of each of the talks, and we'll sure. know a little bit more. Okay. Uh, then uh, Masabalano Stushi will be uh, giving two tutorials uh, did the day before. Uh, he works for Ripe and gives lots of these types of tutorials. But if you want to learn about creating a nice IPv6 addressing plan, uh, he's giving that. And then there's also a tutorial on DNSSEC. Nice. Okay. 
And uh, Icorn's going to be doing dodging raindrops, escaping the public cloud. Mm, there you go. Maybe running your own cloud stuff there? Probably. Yeah, I need, to, I need summaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, cool. yep. uh, Brooks Davis is everything you ever wanted to know about Hello World. Uh, so this would be different mm. than I'm, I'm guessing. This is related to Cherry and what okay. what happens when you change Hello World to run on you know with 128 bit pointers with capabilities sure. or something. Uh, you know, in the summaries would be handy to have. But uh, uh, looking forward to that. Uh, Nick Wolf, who we interviewed recently, will be talking mm-hmm. about uh, his work to upgrade from FreeBSD 8 to 10 and the lessons he learned there. I'm sure uh, there are lots of people in that same boat and. Uh, you know, they will learn lots. And I'm kind of encouraged to see that a lot of the folks we've interviewed who haven't come to BSDCAN before, it looks like this will be their first time and exactly. they're giving a talk. So that's that's really cool. See, doing an interview on the show just opens up doors for mm-hmm. you. So <laughs> definitely come on. Yes. Like, you know, John Baldwin. Nobody's ever heard of him before. and He's never right, been to true. BSDCAN before. Yeah. Uh, he'll be presenting about FreeBSD and GDB. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, yeah. so we have uh, also FreeBSD-based high-density uh, filers. Looks yes. like a uh, Wojcik. Are we doing that? No, nope. uh, that's Baptiste. Oh, that's Baptiste. The Sorry. table is hard to read. Eh? I know. it's hard. I'm having to highlight him as I go through to make yeah. sure. It's, uh, it's uh, Kirk Russell's fault. He's got this really long name for his talk, and it skewed oh. the whole field. <laughs> uh, yes, but uh, Wojcik uh, will be talking about the Cavium Thunder X system yep. on a okay. chip, which is ARM64. Uh, then... Vinicius uh, Zevim will be talking about Beekaboom Black and Robotics. Mm. That'll be definitely that'll be, cool if you're into yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, that'll be well attended one. Uh, and then Aaron Poffenberger will be giving a second boff. Uh, he made the mistake I did last year of recommending a whole list of boffs and getting stuck being in charge of all of them. Yeah, it's a great idea. Now you can do that. <laughs> yep. Uh, so he's giving one about uh, Haskell. Okay. And, uh, so if you're interested in that, definitely check that out. Uh, Mike Velofov will be talking about uh, Zen PVHVM for OpenBSD. Hmm. Uh, That'll be a hot one. Yep. Then uh, Kajetan. I'm not going to butcher that yes. last name. Uh, I'm, I think that might be the Solaris guy who's working on PF. I'm not sure. Hmm. But it's talk about improving PF's performance and reliability. Hence okay. why I thought it might be the guy from Solaris working on PF. Uh, Brian Drury will be talking about his recent work to improve the FreeBSD build system. Uh, he's is been doing a lot of stuff. Packaging there. base and stuff? Uh, no, this one is more build building world faster and okay. removing some of the old cruft. Uh, okay. and, like integration of Ccache uh, and all that. Lots sure. of stuff to make it faster. Uh, Warren Block will be talking about improving the FreeBSD translation tools. So nice. if you're interested in getting the FreeBSD documentation in other languages, that's a great one. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Uh, Giuseppe Letteria uh, will be talking about JSON-based configuration of kernel subsystems. Interesting. That would actually tie into RAPI really well. Yeah, so especially since JSON is compatible with UCL. Yes, I yes. Uh, will have to go talk to him about that. Indeed. Maybe attend that talk. Indeed. Okay. So we got David Italiano is going to be doing a LLD, the new linker for FreeBSD. Mm-hmm. That sounds interesting. That'll be a lecture. Yep. Uh, and then we have, we have uh, how do you pronounce that? Peter Egg, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce the last Puno name. Savic? <laughs> yeah. Limits, Limits in the practical usability of BSDs, a big data perspective. Oh, that'll definitely be cool. interesting. Uh, you know, that's the kind of thing we really like to see is more mm-hmm. uh, people telling us where the problems are in BSDs sure. so that we can fix them. Uh, yep. yep. And then uh, Massimo Milano will actually be giving a lecture as well called Making the Internet More Secure. 
Uh, mm -hmm. You know, coming from the perspective of Ripe, that will definitely be very interesting. Okay. Uh, and then Sean Chittenden, uh, who we've interviewed here, uh, will be talking about modern tooling to assist with developing applications on FreeBSD. Nice. So, nice. again, more feedback from industry, which we like to see. Mm -hmm. uh, Dexuan Chu will be talking about uh, networking performance improvements for FreeBSD guests in Hyper-V. So, how to get oh. more network I.O. out of your VMs which I'm guessing will apply to things other than just uh, Hyper-V. Oh, that's um, nice. Hey, Bernard Spill is going to be doing an open slash Libra SSL on FreeBSD. Indeed. See that, see if he's got his new uh, private Libra SSL on base yet or not. Yep. That'd be cool. Uh, Antoine Chacuto uh, uh, will be talking about the OpenBSD RC.D, uh, uh -huh. Michael Lucas, OpenPAM and BSD. Nice. Uh, Aaron Poffenberger will be giving a also a tutorial on OpenSMTVD. So if you want to learn how to set that up, check it out. What's that? Three things he's doing now? I he, think he, he's got he mentioned this on the show. He was going to submit a bunch in the hopes that one of them yes. got accepted. <laughs> now you're doing them all. Sorry. Yeah, so he's got a tutorial before the conference, the boffs during every lunch during the conference, and uh, like I said, she's a yeah. half-day tutorial. Well, yeah, he's got uh, one, yeah, a half-day tutorial and then two boffs. <laughs> Like nice. okay. uh, this one I'm interested in. Matt Aarons will be talking about open ZFS space allocation. Okay. So how ZFS actually lays out the stuff on disk. Uh, I wonder if, if any of the stuff we talked about at the storage summit about how SMR will have to change some of this will apply. Mm -hmm. That'll be uh, definitely interesting. Very glad to see Matt coming out to BSD Can again. Uh, hopefully he has more luck than he did the other year where all the flights got screwy and he arrived with sure. no luggage. Uh, well, that happens to everybody, uh, or somebody at least every year. Yes. So. Well, it happened to a lot of people. Well, you didn't even make it that year. No, that one year I didn't even make it. Yeah. Back home. Yeah. That was fun. Uh, Sebastian Benoit will be talking about open source routing. Uh, mm -hmm. Odin Shanun will be talking about uh, packet pacing, rate limiting for uh, per flow TCP UDP, which is definitely interesting. Uh, mm -hmm. Then uh, Mahai Karavas will be talking about porting Beehive to ARM-based platforms. Oh, interesting. Uh, Arun Thomas will be talking about the RISC-V, uh, Berkeley hardware for your Berkeley software distribution. Oh, Ed Mass doing reproducible builds in FreeBSD. Yes, yes so please. apparently we're almost there. Uh, I'm there. Yep. there. Henning Brower will be talking about running an ISP on OpenBSD. Mm -hmm. uh, George Neville Deal will be doing Through the Wire, which is his uh, network performance work. Okay. Uh, John Nielsen's doing using VXLAN to network virtual machines, jails, and other fun things on FreeBSD. Yes, that's a great technology for allowing VLANs to actually stand across physical networks. So you mm -hmm. can, if you have multiple data centers, you can actually have VLANs that go between them. And it allows you to have more than 4,000 VLANs, which can matter wow. if you're doing virtual machines. If you're, if you're running a cloud for other people and you have more than 4,000 customers, you need more than 4,000 VLANs. Sure. Yep, uh, Kirk Russell will be doing using uh, competitive analysis to increase the effectiveness of open source uh, system fuzz testing, uh, okay. which will apply to an article we're talking about later in this episode. Uh, then I will be running a ZFS BOF, which I'm sure uh, I can... I got you into one of those too. Yep, okay. uh, I'm sure I can get Matt Aarons to come help out with that, answer questions. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Michael Dexter will be talking about disk CTL, which is a permissively licensed smart and raw disk command framework. So uh, something... To replace uh, SmartMon tools slash SmartCTL, mm -hmm. uh, but also to replace a bunch of the cam raw commands for doing things like uh, tuning the uh, noise limiting on your hard drive and uh, how soon it goes to sleep. 
mm-hmm. so that it doesn't you know go to sleep and wake up too frequently uh but also the problem with smart ctl is the output is very geared towards humans sure. and it's very hard to script anything with automate it automate anything yes yeah. so a disctl with an option to say output in json or even just tab delimited straight text or something uh would be very useful and so there's that and then uh, luis otavio uh souza will be talking about netmap forward uh which is nice uh basically using netmap to do routing which should be really fast okay so we basically got 48 different things here most of them lectures a couple tutorials some boffs but yep this is going to be a really action-packed VSD can. Yes. Definitely got to make a point to get out there. And yes, uh, I really did like to see that there's quite a few people that I haven't uh, seen presenting before mm-hmm. coming out. Yeah. New folks. That's yep. a great thing. Yes. Uh, hoping to, uh, you know, see more new people attending as well. Um, you know, especially more sysadmins. That's what we need at these conferences. Right. Well, and speaking of, don't forget, there's a lot of dev summits that take place. So if you're planning on being there, get there a couple days early. Do the, If you're a yes. committer, obviously do the dev summit. If you're not committer, tutorials. find a committer that's a friend of yours or get signed up. Or yes, the there's tutorials. that. Uh, also, there will be, uh, well, there should be, hopefully, a newbie orientation track thing okay. uh, where you can basically get assigned if it's your first time to bsd can you'll be able to get assigned a person to help you kind of pick which talks to go to and get you acquainted with you know some of us have been going to bsd can for quite a few years more than me even uh and know where all the cool spots are and <laughs> mm-hmm. you know uh if you're very new to a conference it can be nice to have you know a conference buddy to uh that's been there before knows where all the goodies are sure and how things work Okay, well, great. Well, of mm-hmm. course, we'll look forward to seeing you all there. So uh, try and get all signed up and ready. Yes. Don't leave it to the last minute. Yes, and, you know, like I said, make sure you're there by Tuesday night so that you can come to the Goat Boff. Mm-hmm. You know, even though the, the talks don't start till Friday. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you want to be there on Tuesday because Wednesday and Thursday is full of goodness, and then mm-hmm. Friday and Saturday are the talks, which are even more goodness. Oh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Yes. Okay. It's weird so to be so it. excited about BSDCAN when... AGBSDCon is next week. Oh, yeah. Just got to get over the flight first. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun. We'll look forward to seeing some of you there as well. Okay. So, what's our next article here? We have something about what does load average really mean? Yes. And the many load averages of Unix. So, mm-hmm. walk us through this one. What are they doing here at the University of Toronto? Yes. Uh, so, this is an article from uh, Chris Seibenman, uh, who's mm-hmm. a sysadmin at the University of Toronto. And uh, he runs a couple of different operating systems over there. You know, they have some FreeBSD machines. I think they have OpenBSD routers. And then they have uh, some uh, OmniOS-based machines for ZFS. And, uh, and I imagine they have some Linux in there as well. And he, sure. he looked into it and it's like, these load averages don't make any sense. <laughs> uh, and so he dug into some of the code and tried to figure out what load average actually means. So sure. back in the beginning, by which he means 3BSD, uh, the load average counted how many processes were runnable or in short-term I.O. wait, uh, you know, like waiting for the disk. Uh, the BSD kernel computed this count periodically by walking over the entire process table. Uh, you can see this example, and he links to the function in the old 4.2 BSD source code. Uh, Unixes that were derived from 4BSD carried this definition forward uh, for load average. You know, that which meant SunOS and Alteryx. 
uh, sysadmins using NFS back in these days got very familiar with the short-term IO wait part of load average because if your NFS server stopped responding, all of your NFS clients would accumulate huge load as more and more processes were stuck waiting for the NFS server. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says, well, technically it wasn't IO wait, but any process that is sleeping with a non-interoperable priority for less than a second or something like that. He says, um, when Linux implemented the load average back in 0.96C, uh, it copied the traditional definition from BSD. Uh, the Linux load average has been uh, run queue plus short-term IO wait ever since, although the exact uh, mechanics of how it's computed have changed over time to be more efficient than, you know, you know, once we had multi-processor systems with large number of processes, uh, walking over the entire process tree every time to calculate this didn't make as much sense anymore. Sure. Uh, when Sun executed the great uh, OS4 or Sun OS4 to Solaris transition, they changed a bunch of things about what load average meant on Solaris. Uh, but looking at the Illumos code, it, he determined that it was too complicated to for him to want to figure out exactly how it calculates it for this blog post. <laughs> But it's different. Uh, the situation in the BSDs is even messier. Uh, he hasn't thoroughly investigated the historical source trees, but it seems that uh, uh, 386 BSD and then NetBSD didn't immediately change uh, the 4BSD definition. Uh, certainly the FreeBSD 2.0 source code, uh, which he has handy access to via the uh, um, a GitHub repo, uh, still counts processes in IO wait. Then at some point, things got very tangled with some of the other available information. Um, he says, uh, at some point, FreeBSD split apart from uh, OpenBSD and NetBSD on load average calculations. Uh, and even OpenBSD and NetBSD are somewhat divergent from each other now. Mm-hmm. In FreeBSD, the load average counts only runnable processes, not processes in IO wait. The count of runnable processes is maintained on the fly by the scheduler, so it doesn't have to walk through the list. So that means on FreeBSD, load average is only about CPU time and doesn't consider processes that are waiting on the disk. On NetBSD, uh, the function counts runnable processes and all sleeping processes that have slept for less than one second so far. And in OpenBSD, uh, it says the function appears to count runnable processes and sleeping processes that have a high priority I.O. wait and have slept for less than one second so far. Hmm. Uh, So this is seemingly fewer sleeping processes than NetBSD counts because it does all IO wait, whereas OpenBSD only does high priority IO wait. So it means if you ran the same load on Illumos, Linux, FreeBSD, NetBSD, and OpenBSD, all the load averages would be different. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. And he says, don't even not, ask not me what Dragonfly confusing. does. <laughs> yeah, not just a little confusing. <laughs> yes. This is, uh, this is all very messy and contradicts some things uh, knowledgeable OpenBSD people have said to me. Mind you, they said them back in 2009, but on the other hand, I can't imagine OpenBSD would have dropped what they were doing, switched to something new, and then restored back to it. Uh, mm-hmm. But he hasn't uh, dug through all the CVS logs to figure out. And you know, he didn't even look at what macOS X tries to do. Uh, yeah, who knows? <laughs> energetic people are encouraged to do their own research. <laughs> Well, I'll have to see if anybody follows up with that. Yeah. He's, man, quite different in all the different Unixes. Uh, the nice thing about the way FreeBSD does it, other than the fact that you have to use some other tool to look at, uh, what do you call it, uh, at the I.O. stuff, uh, mm-hmm. is you can compare load averages between machines with different CPUs and different core counts by basically taking the load average and dividing it by the number of cores. 
you know, mm -hmm. back when I started, having a load average higher than like three meant your system was pretty bad, right? Yeah. You know, you, yeah. you have one processor and there are always at least three programs wanting to use 100% of it. Mm -hmm. um, whereas now, if you have, say, 24 cores, then a load average of three means that it's pretty not busy. Yeah. Uh, so you kind of have to divide the load average by the core count uh, to get an idea of approximately how much time the system spends waiting to be able to do stuff. Uh, but you know. like that, that could be some work done there to uh, improve that or improve the reporting of that so it's a little yeah. more obvious based on cores now. Yeah. Okay, well, definitely interesting. Well, mm -hmm. we'll see. Maybe they'll do a follow-up. Like, this is how Mac does it. This is how it happens elsewhere. But <laughs> yep. <laughs> we'll see what happens. It'd be more interesting okay. to, to try to figure out a standard of, of what is actually useful to measure. Mm -hmm. True. True, true. Okay, so as a follow-up to a story last week, we had mentioned uh, last week's episode how Ubuntu was preparing to release their next version with native ZFS support. And uh, we had uh, heard that the Software Freedom Conservancy was working on a statement dealing with that. And as expected, they did issue one uh, detailing some of the legal argument on why they believe this is a violation of the GPL for Linux kernel. So uh, we have a link to the article here in the show notes. And it's a pretty darn long uh, and complete article, so you may want to take a chance to uh, read through that. But uh, we wanted to just kind of touch on a little bit of the summary they posted here and, of course, encourage you to read the rest since it's good to be knowledgeable about the various open source projects and, of course, licensing conditions and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And, hey, if you're developing something, this may affect you. So good to be uh, a little bit boned up on this. But uh, we'll just share, of course, the summary here. And then we have a counterpoint from the F Software Freedom Law site as well. So we'll get to that. But first, their summary, they said, uh, we're sympathetic to Canonical's frustration and this desire to easily support more features for their users. However, as set out below, we have concluded that their distribution of ZFS.ko violates the GPL. We have written this statement to answer from the point of view of many key Linux copyright holders the community questions that we've seen on this matter. Specifically, we provide our detailed analysis of the incompatibility between the CDDL v1 and the GPL v2 as its potential impact on the trajectory of free software development below. They said, however, our conclusion is simple. The Conservancy and Linux copyright holders in the GPL compliance project for Linux developers believe that the distribution of ZFS binaries is a GPL violation and infringes Linux copyright. We are also concerned that it may infringe Oracle's copyrights in ZFS. As such, we again ask Oracle to respect community norms against license proliferation and simply relicense its copyrights in ZFS under a GPL v2 compatible license. Uh, what would you place the chances of that happening at? Uh, well... Unofficially, I've heard that somebody offered Oracle at least $100 million to do that and Ooh. were told to go fly a kite. <laughs> well, if they offered that kind of money and Oracle said, take a hike, I think that puts the odds at next to zero. Yeah. But yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, we'll, of course, keep you up to date. So what was the counterpoint on this here, Alan? Yes. So the uh, Software Freedom Law Center, which... Uh, kind of works at a different angle uh, from where the um, the software conservancy is about protecting the rights of the license and the, and the license holders, the people that actually write the kernel. Uh, mm -hmm. The Software Freedom Law Center is more about uh, providing services to the people that are having to do stuff with the license and, and interpretation and so on. Uh, but they um, basically detail how there's this licensing file in the Linux kernel that specifically takes the stance that uh, as far as the GPL goes, uh, anything that's in user land is not uh, 
considered to be a derived work of sure. the Linux kernel. Uh, so basically, the collectively the people that run uh, that build Linux have made the statement that this is how we interpret this part of the the license to make it clear for people to use it. And so, if the kernel developers feel that uh, you know a kernel module like the ZFS one isn't violating their copyright then they can update that license file to include a statement about that. And then that way people can be less worried about it. Uh, and anyway, it's a long article with all the legal arguments uh, and basically talks about how this isn't the first time that this kind of thing has come up. Right? Sure. The, the Andrew file system module, which is, uh, I think, from IBM, uh, or actually, no, it's from a university. I think it's Carnegie Mellon. I forget. Anyway, uh, has a similar problem, and there's you know obviously all the uh, graphics drivers and a bunch of other modules that are kind of in the same situation. Uh, the interesting thing here is that the license for the CDDL allows you to make a binary out of it and actually distribute that binary as a GPLv2 licensed binary. That's allowed under the CDDL. The problem is the GPL license says that if you make a binary and license it GPL, you have to license the source code as GPL. Sure. And the CDDL uh, doesn't allow you to impose additional restrictions on the CDDL license, which the GPL does. And so it's this very confusing thing where actually the problem isn't the CDDL license, it's maybe the GPL license. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, if you want to learn more about uh, it and read the legal opinions, you should uh, check out this blog from the softwarefreedom.org. Okay. And I guess the FreeBSD Foundation issued something as well. Uh, yes. Yeah, so we'll get to that one in a sec. And then oh, uh, yep. the other one is uh, James Bottomley, who's the Linux SCSI subsystem maintainer. And so, mm -hmm. you know, probably has something to do, uh, some interest in storage systems and file systems and so on. Uh, so he has a blog post about this saying, you know, uh, Canonical recently threw this issue into sharp relief with their decision to ship a CDL licensed ZFS. Um, and, uh, you know, there's much legal wrangling about this at this mm -hmm. point. But uh, he says they're finding that it's not a derivative work is somewhat unconvincing uh, because there are other people have done similar things and, and got in trouble for it. Uh, sure. But in general, uh, for license compliance, it really comes down to in, in tort law in the US uh, that you have to actually show that someone was harmed. And mm -hmm. how do they do that for this particular case? Because I, I don't know that the, the people with the GPL, you know, the Linux kernel developers are not necessarily harmed by ZFS being available to people. Hmm. But yeah, so yet another different uh, perspective on the issue. Uh, mm -hmm. Worth a read if you're interested. And then yes, the uh, FreeBSD Foundation uh, put up a post uh, and they're basically for, for nearly seven years now, FreeBSD has included a production quality ZFS implementation and it's kind of become a key feature of FreeBSD. And the nice thing is that the, uh, you know, two-clause uh, <laughs> liberal... Uh, copy-free license, the BSD license, allows you to interact with other uh, licenses without too much trouble, sure. really. 
this is one of those situations where really the only people who win are the lawyers. Yes. They get to bill a lot for this kind of crap. <laughs> so interesting. Okay. Well, we have all the links to that in our show notes, of course. So take a look if you're interested mm-hmm. in some of the legal wrangling that's happening behind the scenes. And of course, we'll uh, keep an eye on that as it unfolds. Mm-hmm. Okay. So next, we have some Dragonfly news. It looks like yes. their i915 driver, man, that thing just keeps on flying, but they have updated it to match Linux kernel 4.2 for yep. the uh, Intel DRM KMS driver. So, of course, uh, various improvements, better support for new hardware. You know, like Bridewell and Skylake. Uh, it's not right. complete. I, I don't think Skylake was perfect in Linux until 4.4, which is like literally only a month old or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this definitely improves the support for that. Yeah. So I guess one big difference they're saying is that Dragonfly BSD does not require the binary uh, firmware blob that mm-hmm. Linux uses. So uh, Francois Chargeau explains that starting from Linux 4.2, there's a separate firmware blob that's required to save and restore the state of just some uh, display engines in some low-power modes. These uh, low-power mode uh, modes have been forcibly disabled in Dragonfly's version of the driver so they can keep it blob-free, which yeah. seems like a good trade-off. I think that's a good idea. Yeah, well, and, you know, uh, while that has some disadvantages, it's not a feature that anybody in Dragonfly has ever had, so they're not likely to miss it. Yeah, true. We didn't take anything away from you. We just didn't yes. add this thing. Yeah. Uh, that's and way to go. I can see some Linux distros probably deciding to do the same thing. Sure. Uh, you know, if they want to be blob-free. Uh, okay. But I don't know if these low-power modes mean, like, while it's running... And like, you know, know, it's just the video card kind of half goes to sleep in the background. Uh, or if it's, you know, when you actually like suspend, it's like, well, if no you're idea. suspended, you're not really using much power at all, right? True, true. No idea. But anyway, it seems like uh, keep an eye on that, mm-hmm. see what happens. But uh, yeah. yeah, good job, guys. That's awesome. They're, they are, man, just flying on that stuff. Yeah, although I hear that uh, the update to 3.8, is it, for FreeBSD mm-hmm. is, is almost done? It's close to hitting Fabricator, from yeah. what I understand. It's close. Like I, fi- I guess they fixed some of the last regressions. Yeah, there was a, a big and so bug in that, that they nailed. And yeah, if they can, hopefully each one successive one is a little bit easier and uh, yeah. we can catch up. It'll kind of snowball there, right? Yep. Once they get enough of the, the back end change where it's easier to pull from upstream. Yep. So. Cool. Okay, so before we get into our interview, it's time to mention our first sponsor this week, which we're going to be starting with DigitalOcean. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's DigitalOcean.com. You can go create an account, uh, put a couple bucks in there, and uh, heck, for five bucks a month, you can start running their low-end VM. And I mean, that's backed by SSDs, a terabyte of transfer. It'll natively uh, support FreeBSD. You, of course, can do Linux on it. Um, if you want to get a little more adventurous, you can install OpenBSD on it or uh, NetBSD. It a NetBSD as well. Yep. So. Uh, you get a definitely very cool. You get a full HTML5 console that's mm-hmm. basically equivalent to like BIOS level access. So mm-hmm. you can you know interrupt the boot and uh, use your script or whatever, and basically overwrite whatever's on the disk with whatever else you want. Yeah, that's uh, fantastic. And there's guides out there for how to do that. You can search past episodes of BSD now if you want to find those links. But uh, definitely the info's out there on how to do that. It should just be an easy walkthrough to follow. But uh, don't forget, if you're signing up with a new account and you haven't used any other coupon codes, you can use free BSD now as your coupon code. Mm-hmm. And uh, that'll give you a $10 credit, which, of course, is good for running a VM for two months if you're yeah. using that lower-end one, which is a great way if you're just getting set up and uh, you don't really have to put any money out at that point. You can just uh, try it out, get it set up, and yeah, well, after that, 5 bucks a month for that sucker. Yeah, well, with any of the BSDs, 512 megs of RAM is enough to run the OS and a couple of services that you're going to stick in this thing. Uh, yeah, I'm and, doing it, and I got three jails running on it. Yeah. <laughs> 
That's the nice thing about jails, right? <laughs> yeah, very lightweight. So yeah, I've got three separate jails running three separate things, and it works very well. So I yeah. cannot complain yeah. at that price. I mean, shoot, yeah, that's like one trip to Starbucks half the time, <laughs> or less than yeah. a trip to Starbucks. So exactly. anyway, it is a good deal. So go check it out today, guys, DigitalOcean.com. Don't forget that coupon code. Take a look at their great FAQs. They got a lot of good information, tutorials, walkthroughs on how to do different things to get you set up, and uh, you'll be flying in no time. Yeah. Uh, make sure to consider where to put your VM. You have mm-hmm. uh, East Coast and West Coast of the U.S., Canada, uh, England, Germany, Netherlands, and Singapore to pick from. Uh, on top of private networking, if you have multiple VMs, you can actually uh, network them in the back end and transfer data for free between them, not counting okay. against your bandwidth quota. Not that your bandwidth quota isn't healthy enough with a terabyte sure. included with the $5 one and two terabytes with the $10 one, uh, and all the stuff you might need. Uh, has a great uptime SLA, uh, reverse DNS management, so it even works great for mail servers and stuff. Uh, everything you might need is all there. Great. Well, go get signed up today and Mm -hmm. let us know what you're using it for. I'm sure there's all kinds of crazy things you guys are doing. Our guest this week is Jamie McParland, a a technology supervisor at the Newburgh Public Schools in Oregon. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes, thanks for coming on. Uh, So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started with BSD? Um, Well, uh, the computer journey that I've been on has, has, has been a long one. It started out in the early 90s. I lived with a roommate who bought a Macintosh and I wanted to play with it and uh, he said that I'm not allowed to touch this computer until I read all the manuals. So I read all the Quark Express and, and Photoshop books that he had and uh, he eventually let me play with it. And so uh, from there I got a job as a graphic designer at a newspaper and while I was there I was I was basically, we had no IT department, and I was the only person that was interested in how the computers actually worked, and so by, uh, you know, de facto became the IT guy there, and moved out to Oregon, uh, started working at a hardware repair shop doing Macintosh repairs, and then um, one of the guys I worked with at the hardware place uh, came to the school district here. Uh, They had OS X server uh, 10.0, which was basically next step with the um, you know Mac OS classic Mac OS interface on it and um, they were having some problems with it and they called me out to help with it I had no idea what I was doing but I was able to solve the problem and uh, they offered me a job and that's that's kind of where I got started with uh, um, server software and that sort of thing so um, when we came when I came to the district we had no firewall and uh, three Class C subnets, uh, no DHCP server, um, and everything was, you know, uh, manually assigned IP addresses. It was written down on a legal pad which which, which computer had which <laughs> IP address, and uh, so from there, I kind of jumped in with both feet. We had some donated hardware, and I said, you know, you guys, we have to put a firewall in, uh, and we installed OpenBSD on it, and uh, we've been, <laughs> you know, BSD and other open source software ever since. So cool. Ah, so that's how that was your first introduction to using BSD. Pretty much, yeah. Open BSD firewall for a school district. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a trial by fire. Yep. You know, just jump in with both feet and and you know make sure the internet works. Luckily, you know, back in uh, two thousand uh, when I started here, you know, we only had a you know a few computer labs. So you know if when I did break the internet by misconfiguring OpenBSD, it wasn't the end of the world like it is nowadays. So, yeah. Cool. 
Uh, so tell us a little bit about the school district. Uh, how large is it? Uh, for Oregon, we're a medium-sized school district. We have about uh, 5,000 students, 550 staff. Um, Technology-wise, we have uh, between physical and virtual servers, we have about 65 servers. Um, we own about, I'd say, four to five thousand devices. You know, with uh, Android tablets, iPads, Chromebooks, you know, Mac laptops, PC laptops, that sort mm -hmm. of thing. Uh, about four to five thousand devices. We're working on going one to one uh, by the year 2020. Um, so every kid will have a device. Um, and our network, uh, about 10,000 IP devices on our network. So, you know, with BYOD and, uh, you know, everything's connected to the internet yep. now, HVAC, yep. you know, all that stuff. So about 10,000 devices on the network. Um, and we have a tech department staff of four people. So um, a lot of devices for us to take care of. Yeah. But I got an amazing, amazing crew of guys that work with me. So, um, yeah, that's cool. Uh, so you can tell us a little bit about the mixture of technologies that you have behind the scenes to, to run all that? Yeah. Uh, you know, we basically, the tech department, you know, we it's everything you can Im imagine, mm -hmm. you know, uh, networking and switches, enterprise wireless. Um, you know, we terminate fiber, fixing network drops, deal with, you know, internet filtering, mail servers, phishing attacks. Um, you know, for server stuff, uh, we're all over the board. Uh, VMware, Linux, Microsoft, FreeNAS, uh, OpenBSD, FreeBSD. Uh, we host a lot of like education apps in-house. Um, and so, yeah, it's just uh, basically, you know, if it uses electricity, we're responsible for it. Yep. So, you know, it, it, you know, it's nice because it keeps things interesting. You know, uh, one call could be about fax machine not working. The next call could be about, you know, um, kids and and getting into websites they're not supposed to and that sort of stuff and then the next call could be you know an angry uh, parent so yeah it's definitely a, a wide variety of stuff that we mm -hmm. do here uh so one of the ones we heard about uh when we asked you to come on the show was switching away from uh nexenta devices for storage to freenas uh, a couple of years ago so what yeah. prompted that so um you know i've been here 16 years now and uh it's like this like continuous integration of technology here um, in the early 2000s we had uh, Linux boxes with hardware raid um, you know for our clients uh, for a lot of years we did uh, k12 LTSP so Linux terminals we had about 800 of them at one point and so we have a lot a lot of little files mm -hmm. um, and trying to do backups you know we were using rsync and and at the time, rsync needed to walk the tree every yep. time you know that walk the directory and so you know backups were taking 24 hours <laughs> you know so the uh it just wasn't possible so we needed to move to like uh block level replication um that's when we started to hear about zfs and, and looked into it uh we went with nexenta and it worked pretty well we really like zfs uh but nexenta the, we really wanted to have a bunch of nodes for redundancy and with the licensing, you know, in a K-12 school district where, you know, mm -hmm. we're just so underfunded, uh, the licensing costs were killing us. Um, and 
Nixento is, is kind of like a weird mix of Solaris and Debian or something. I'm not exactly <laughs> yeah. sure. So it was a little odd for us to deal with. And so uh, at that point, you know, we'd heard FreeBSD was getting ZFS. And um, so we looked into vanilla FreeBSD and NetBSD and ultimately uh, tested out FreeNAS and, and decided on FreeNAS. Cool. And so how's that been? <laughs> uh, it's been great. You know, um, it's interesting because everything you think you know about storage is kind of turned on its head when you uh, deal with ZFS. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, you don't want a RAID card, you want a HBA and you need tons of RAM and lots of spindles and, and that sort of thing. So, um, but yeah, FreeNAS has been uh, amazing. Right. So you're using it to store the backups or to store the primaries so that you can replicate them or? So all of our, um, all of our storage is done on mm-hmm. FreeNAS. Uh, our VMware uh, virtual machines are stored on FreeNAS. Um, uh, all our user storage, group storage, um, security camera footage, you name it. A- anything that needs storage is, is put on FreeNAS. That's uh, quite a mix of different workloads, actually. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. And, and, you know, and like, you know, going back to the Nixenta thing, we try to separate out those workloads if we can, you know, um, when you need long security camera footage. It's just you know, where simple, it's just straight, append only. Yeah. Right. But then when you have 5,000 students that are using LTSP and they have, you know, billions of little tiny preference files in their home folder, that's a whole different data yep. set, you know, to deal with. So... Um, the last time I checked in our group storage, we had 1.1 million files, and our user storage was at 12.8 million files. So, not huge file sizes, but just so many little files. And uh, you know, being able to do that block level uh, replication has been yeah. a game changer for us. Yeah. So, how do you set up your FreeNAS boxes to ensure failover and reliability? We don't do any automated failure failover. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Not necessarily in FreeNAS, but in other things, uh, I've found automated failover a lot of times can cause more <laughs> failures than prevent them. Mm-hmm. So I'm a big fan of what I call warm failover, uh, you know, where everything's set up, uh, but it takes human intervention to actually uh, like throw the know, switch. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, right now we have uh, seven FreeNAS servers, over 150 hard drives. Uh, most of them are 7,200 RPM SAS drives set up as mirrors. Um, and almost all our servers have two pools. Uh, the live pool sends snapshots to the secondary pool every 15 minutes. And then we also have a third backup off-site. So. Mm-hmm. That's a good setup. Uh, so what does your off-site uh, data recovery plan look like? Um, like I said, all our storage is, is uh, free NAS. Um, and, you know, being here for as long as I have and, and um, it's, I kind of feel like anything that could possibly go wrong has gone wrong. At least once. Us, you know, over, the, over the years, yeah. Uh, you know, and the thing about data loss is data loss doesn't need to be a natural disaster like a flood or a fire. Um, you know, we've had misconfigured AC units in the server room that were turned off over a long weekend and, like, the email alerts didn't happen, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, I live an hour away from my office and uh, twice we've had contractors come in over a break <clears throat> and test the Halon system. Well, what they did was they turned off the main breaker in the, in the data center 
I start getting alerts from the UPS, but nobody's at the, you know, nobody's at the office except for uh, the contractors. And so um, I'm driving down here in a mad rush and I get here and, you know, the whole data center is powered off, you know. Um, uh, you know, and, and I think a lot of people don't like to admit, but, uh, you know, admin error, uh, you, you know, when you work long hours, you can be tired and, and totally fat finger something. Uh, you know, one time I added a, a device to a pool that I didn't mean to and that I couldn't remove it, yep. you know, and so it's like, you know, that pool is basically toast. And so even all the redundancy that's built into FreeNAS or, you know, in, into ZFS, you can totally goof it up. And, uh, you know, so that's why uh, I have these extra pools laying around, you know, for when uh, non-natural disaster disasters happen. Um, you know, I think a lot of people don't think about restore times. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you have more than a few terabytes of data, it can take days to restore over gig. Yeah. And, you know, our network is busy and important, you know. Uh, nowadays we have, you know, I mean, all our phones, our security cameras, uh, the lights in the parking lot of the, you know, of the high school, um, you know, even the toilet flushing at some of the schools is controlled by the network. And so I, you know, if, if the network's down, school closes. So I can't, you know, eat up our whole pipe to our backup data center, you know, restoring terabytes of data. Mm -hmm. Uh, because you know the network has other important things to do, so and it would take a um, week. <laughs> it would take a long time. Yeah. So luckily, uh, I, I believe next year we're trying to get uh, dark fiber run from our primary mm -hmm. um, data center to our secondary. So we'll have a ten gig uh, connection there, which is is going to be awesome. But you know, in talking about uh, <clears throat> our recovery plan, one thing that I that we do that I think is a little odd is our uh, our group storage. So, um, all our user shares are NFS and they're snapshotted every 15 minutes sent to the uh, second pool and then sent to the offsite pool. Uh, the group shares are interesting because there's a 16 group membership limit for NFS version three. Mm -hmm. Um, so we share uh, our, our groups storage out via iSCSI to SMB server, but you know, some people, will accidentally delete a file or a folder and they want, you know, a single file or folder restored. And it's a pain to, you know, go through 15 minute snapshots of iSCSI, you know, right. uh, volumes. And so, you know, we snapshot the iSCSI extents, um, it, but we, what we do is we'll rsync the group data to our offsite data center and then also snapshot that, um, and then that way, so, so you know, we're able to restore the iSCSI extent if disaster strikes. Uh, but, you know, if some user accidentally deletes a file, we're able to grab, you know, we have multiple revisions of those groups' files. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's pretty mm -hmm. handy. Yeah, I can see how, you know, bulk restoring the iSCSI extent is good for that case. But for the individual file case, having the, you know, file system level rsync type thing makes more sense. Right. Yeah. You know, it only took two times of a user needing a single file to where I had to mount the iSCSI extents and look in it and then unmount mm -hmm. it and then mount the Try one 50 yeah, minutes older. Like, and it's like, well, when was the last time it was what? there? Yeah. It's like, you know what? This is an awful mm -hmm. idea. We need to solve this. So, yeah, we've definitely got it solved now. Yeah. Uh, so we also heard that you use external JBODs uh, for, to store your disk in at the offsite data center. 
Yeah, we actually use external JBODs everywhere. And, you know, this is where ZFS really shines and is awesome. Um, you know, you can just pick up uh, a JBOD and, and move the disk shelf. Uh, you know, sometimes hardware has a problem, but the, the, the drives in the pool are mm -hmm. okay. And so you can just plug that into a different head unit. Um, you know, if you want to upgrade a server, you just buy a new head unit, stress test it. Uh, make sure it's good, and then just plug your existing pool yeah. into it. So, uh, you know, it's really nice to, you know, have that stuff tested before it's put into production, and, and literally it's just plugging uh, and then doing a zpool import. Um, you know, a, a, and another thing we do is, you know, we only have a, a gig connection between our data centers, and so if we lose the primary and the, and the secondary, you know, depending on uh, the estimated restore time, we can a lot of times physically drive to the offsite data center, pick up that JBOD, bring it back to the main data center, and then make it the primary pool. Yeah. You know, and I, I think an important thing for us uh, is that, you know, a lot of people back up the tape or whatever, but with multi-terabytes, um, you know, we've decided we want to back up to stuff that can become the primary. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know that a lot of people uh, think that. Exactly. You know, because restore times are insane. So. Well, yeah, you know, we had to do the same thing at Scale Engine because, like, well, each of our storage things is, like, 100 terabytes. It's like e right. even if we did pay the extra to go from 1 gig to 10 gig for our link between the two data centers, it would still take forever. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And we need so restore time in hours. Right, right, yeah. You know, and a lot of times, you know, it's basically going back to the old sneaker now. Mm -hmm. You know, we just literally drive over there, pick up the JBOD, put it in my hatchback, drive it back, you know, uh, mount it up, plug in the SAS cable, uh, do a ZPool import, change some NFS share settings, and we're rocking and rolling in, you know, uh, 20 minutes compared to, you know, what could have been two days. Yeah. So. Exactly. You <laughs> know, otherwise it gets uh, pretty insane, you know. You're not, yeah. you're not going to be able to do uh, 582 gigabytes per second <laughs> that you can yeah, get with right. a car and a JBOD full of disks. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, uh, I mean, even if you do have, uh, you know, 10 gig or whatever, you know, that's assuming that your stuff goes down at 7 o'clock at night and you have six hours to, to do the restore. You know, if this happens at 3 in the morning and school starts at, six, you know, 6, 7 in the morning. Yep. You know, you have such a short window, so uh, doing a restore is not an option. And telling people, you know, hey, you can't log into your machines because none of your home directories are available isn't an option either, yep. you know. So uh, I got to make this stuff work, and and, um, and this has worked out really well for us. So Yeah. Uh, so have you had to deal with any uh, crypto locker style malware or ransomware? <sighs> you know, not a lot of it. Um, once on a group share, uh, we were notified and we were, you know, once we were notified, uh, we were able to do a ZFS rollback and be, have their files back in two minutes. You know, um, I read all these like horror stories about people getting hit with this stuff and it, you know, it makes me crazy because there's an awesome open source solution to deal with this just waiting for you to download it and read a book on it and, you know, put it into production. Um, yep. This is just, it, it, it's just frustrating because it seems so avoidable, you know. Um, and so for us, when it happened, it was just like, 
cool. We get to, you know, see if this is going to work and it totally worked. And it was so such a non-issue for us. So yeah, I mean, I'm not saying bring it on by any means, but you know, it's not one of the things that I lose sleep over. I'll say that. Yeah. Well, because the nice thing with something like ZFS means you can, uh, clone the snapshot from before you got crypto lockered and swap the mount point and get that running and everybody's happy uh but you can still actually keep the version that has some of the files crypto lockered in order to individually extract a couple of files that maybe were updated between the last snapshot and hadn't got hit yet or whatever and right yeah you know with any other type of system you don't really get that and you know i yeah. actually saw it at the college where i was consulting uh for a while they uh, we we're talking about, oh yeah, the, you know, the, our, one of our offsite campuses got hit with the crypto locker and, uh, we're saturating our, our point to point link, trying to restore the backups, right. but it'll be down for another oh, like seven hours. I'm like, right. What are you doing? Does ZFS rollback yeah. problem solved? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, if you're snapshotting, you know, every 15, I mean, you can snapshot as fast as, mm-hmm. you know, you can snapshot once a minute if you wanted. Uh, you know, but I, I find 15 minutes for us works really well, yep. and uh, you know, bang, we're we're back in action so fast, it's ridiculous. So, yeah. Um, so, did you get any organizational pushback to trying to use open source software for some of this stuff instead of something commercial? <clears throat> no, uh, surprisingly enough, you know, most schools are broke, um, and I, you know, I find that. Anyone usually wanting to put a non-open source software uh, into production is a lot of times is the technology department. You know that the administrators of the school are more than happy for us to use software that's doesn't cost this you know school district any money. So um, you know it trickled in here. Uh, you know with uh, you know starting with a firewall and then we you know uh, you know put. Got Squid up and running to do filtering uh, to be in compliance with the you know the feds because we get some fun- funding for doing internet filtering, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then we set up a mail uh, you know a listserv and and we just kind of piece by piece just added open source stuff uh, and everybody was super psyched on it and so now um, you know even though we we have VMware and we have some Microsoft stuff you know we use Active Directory and that sort mm-hmm. of thing um, we. You know, if if we can put it in anywhere, uh, you know, that's what we try to. That's our our first call, and uh, yeah, the administration really likes it. So, and you know, also, uh, you know, we had K twelve LTSP, so Linux terminals for years. We had uh, eight or nine hundred of them, and it you know it was these were machines that were no longer fast enough to run Windows mm-hmm. with, and it's like, hey, you know, if we spent, you know, a couple of grand. You know, it was like three grand on a couple of servers. I can give, you know, we can have 800 more kids on computers. And, uh, you know, the administration was all over it. So, yeah, uh, open source software has definitely been a positive uh, impact here for a school district. That's good. Uh, so was there anything else you wanted to mention? Um, yeah, you know, I, I would encourage school districts to play with FreeNAS, FreeBSD, uh, ZFS, um, you know, Buy the ZFE, uh, the previous Mastery ZFS book is really good. I know you had something to do with yeah. that. I enjoyed it. Um, you know, and, and if you can, you know, take the money that you would have spent on an EMC or you know some other crazy, ridiculously expen- you know, expensive SAN. Um, you know, contact IX system, yeah. and 
you know, it just, it really makes sense, you know, uh, you know, and also, you know, I'd say do, do the math on restore times, you know, and if you can do a restore. Exactly. That's Uh, a big one. Make sure that that's, you know, it's a stressful time when that happens. You don't want to find out that, oh yeah, we overlooked something, (laughs) you know, so. And usually even when you overlook something, there's some way around it, but it just always goes better if it's something that you've practiced, right? It's like a fire drill. Right. They do fire drills at schools all the time, right? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, you know, it's it's funny. Those things always go off, and I always think, do I have to go out on those two? You know. So, anyways, but uh, you, you know, and and I would also tell people, you know, if you only have one backup, you don't have a backup. Yep. Um, if there are not three yeah. copies of it, it doesn't actually exist. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I would say, you know, if you do go the ZFS route, you know, coming from a hardware RAID background. You know, you're going to need to throw out everything you, that you think you know about storage and, you know, listen to the people online, use HBAs, not RAID cards, buy more RAM than you can afford, um, you know, and remember lots of spindles. Yes. <laughs> so, well, and that's the advantage to using something like FreeNAS versus an EMC is you can afford to build the primary, the backup, and the remote backup in the same budget you would have spent on the one EMC. Exactly. And, you know... It's not like they're using some sort of special magic parts that aren't available to you know, the general else, yeah. public. And so, you know, they're using Xeon processors, they're using Seagate hard drives, you know. Um, so, you know, you can do that too. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, you know, to wrap up, you know, I, you know, I love the show. I've been listening since episode one. Mm, thank you. I'm a Tar Snap user, thanks to you guys. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I wanted to say, uh, yeah, I wanted to thank you for your work on ZXFer. That's uh, offered us some extra flexibility that uh, we really needed mm-hmm. um, that we couldn't get with the vanilla free NAS. Um, and, uh, you know, also shout out to Mike, Michael Dexter yes. and his consulting services at GameFrame. Uh, you know, there's been many a Friday night where I've called him freaking out. And, uh, you know, he's been super helpful and, and, and definitely a, a positive um and great resource for us to have and you know the guys in the free nas irc channel have been great too you know so lots of great community support on this stuff um you know there are some enterprise things that we pay really expensive support contracts for and you know i think you know we probably get better support with FreeBSD and FreeNAS, uh, you know, on the forums and IRC and, and people like Michael Dexter and, and that sort of thing than we do from any support, you know, enterprise support contract that we pay for. Right. So very positive. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for coming and talk to us and hey, letting us know. Thanks for having mm-hmm. me. Keep up the good work. I love the yes, show. Thank you. Okay, hope you guys enjoyed the interview. We're back. We, of course, we got a busy news roundup to get to Beastie Bits and some comments and questions. But before we do that, let's mention the next sponsor this mm-hmm. week, which is going to be IX Systems. So, of course, the website for that, ixsystems.com slash bsdnow. Go there, you know, fill out the information, get in touch with the guys over at IX, and let them uh, build your next dream system. Or if you need a dozen of them or more, of course, they'll do that for you. They can do everything tiny down to a free NAS mini up to these powerhouse systems we've shown. I think, what was it, last week had that system with 96, 8 terabyte hard drives. Did we ever figure uh, out the 90. math on what that? 90? Did uh, we ever figure out the math on what kind of Z pool that turned into? Well, it, if, if you just do raw storage without the Z pool, that'll be 720 terabytes. Depending how you create the Z pool, that'll be 
you know, different. A lot. Yes. A lot. So <laughs> more than I'll ever see in my lifetime yeah. in my shed. So <laughs> anyway, that, that was really cool. And, of course, IX Systems uh, hardware is all built with the latest and greatest Intel processors, and they can um, do all manner and make of those. I know Alan had a special one where you're doing some video stuff. So yep. they were able to find the right processor to match for you there. Mm-hmm. So uh, they can definitely, of course, build the system to your specs and, of course, to meet whatever goal it is you're trying to achieve. Exactly. Performance, et cetera. So don't just say, hey, I want this hardware. Tell them what you're doing. Yes, with it, they have they will, all kinds of yeah. advice. Yeah, they, they do a lot of this, and they understand a lot of what you're running. These aren't your typical sales guys where they can sell you the hardware, but they don't really know anything about the software side of it. If you tell them what you're doing on the software side of it, they will help make sure you get the right hardware yeah. to do what it is you're trying to do. Because, you know, and, if, uh, if, you, if it's like, oh, well, I'm buying SSDs, but I'm planning to do it as an L2 Eric or Zill or just for the OS. Mm-hmm. Well, for all three of those, you actually want a different SSD. <laughs> That's right. And it's not just for BSD. I mean, mm-hmm. cell systems, the Linux as well. Yes, a lot of actually. Linux, we so. have uh, came in through one of the Reddits here. Uh, mm-hmm. Somebody just got their new IX Systems mail server. Now, they'll be running mm-hmm. Linux on it, but, you know, that's allowed if you really we'll forgive want you to this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they got uh, pictures here. You can see and they got the fancy box, and there's the machine. You can see four network cards plus this dedicated IPMI on the back, some USB two point or two and three ports, serial and VGA, and nice IX Systems logo there in the corner. Mm-hmm. Nice. That is really cool. And yeah, nice zoom in system. on the ports and the logo. Mm-hmm. There it is, all plugged in and lit up. <laughs> nice. Well, hey, that could be mm-hmm. your system next. Don't don't yep. just get jealous at looking at these pictures. Like, call them up today and get that next system ordered so that can be sent to your office or your data center or wherever you need it. Of course, heck, if you need a home system and you want to call up and get a free NAS Mini, they make great Christmas presents. So yep. think about that for the upcoming year as well. Well, <laughs> so. it, like even this machine here, you can see, uh, because it's just a mail server, uh, it's a 1U and it's short depth, so it doesn't take up a lot of space. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I this is very similar to the machine I bought for to be my router. Uh, this one has the IO ports on the front, but uh, mine has it on the back. But, uh, you know, I needed four one gigabit network cards and, uh, you know, a reasonable processor, but nothing too fancy. But I wanted something that was not going to take up a lot of space and not make too much noise. And they managed to build me one. That's great. Well, of course, they can do that for you guys, too. So, again, ixsystems.com slash now. Go get in touch with them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, hey, if you order something, send some pictures because we like to show those yes. off. It's always neat to pictures show off best. new gear. Okay, so first up in the news roundup, we have installing Elk on FreeBSD. We mm-hmm. have a tutorial on a couple parts here. So uh, are you an Elk user? Are you interested in becoming one? If so, uh, Greppo Utini has a nice blog post uh, slash tutorial on how to get started with it on FreeBSD. So first of all, you know, I had to look this up, but in case you haven't heard of Elk, it's not the Elk imports. That's something else. In this mm-hmm. case, he's talking about a stack, uh, referring to Elasticsearch, Logstash, and Kibana as a stack together. Yep. So uh, just to clarify, don't just go type package install Elk and, oh, I'm done. Like, this is something different. Yep. But uh, anyway, getting started is actually relatively easily easy. He uh, walks you through it in the first blog post here. It's just uh, a few different packages he's installing. In this case, uh, you have TextProc, uh, Elasticsearch, uh, SysUtils Logstash, TextProc, uh, Kibana 4.3, and for good measure, of course, we have good old trusty Nginx thrown in the mix here. Mm-hmm. 
Um, after he gets those packages installed, he shows you how to enable the various services. Although, uh, hey, come on, it's SysRC. You know, 2016, SysRC may be a lot easier. You don't have to be echoing long things to rc.conf anymore. Mm-hmm. So uh, just a heads up on that. He then takes us through the configuration of Elasticsearch and Logstash. Um, for the most part, pretty straightforward. Doesn't look like super complicated mm-hmm. uh, config files. But the nice thing is he has the full files available on the site. So you can just copy and paste the examples he provides as well if you just want to get up and running really quickly. Mm-hmm. So that's in the first blog post. So the follow-up is the second part here where he takes us now through the K part of Elk, which is going to be setting up Kibana. And, of course, exposing it via Nginx for the uh, public consumption side of it. So at this point, though, uh, most of the CLI work he had to do is finished. So um, the next step is doing a walkthrough of setting up Kibana via their uh, website, uh, web-driven UI. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's nice that he has a lot of pictures of that. So you can see exactly where you need to go and click. And uh, after you get that all set up, I guess there's a final entry to the blog series that we're waiting for where he's going to show setting up uh, a last alert. And, of course, we'll bring your, bring that to your attention when it lands. Mm-hmm. Of course, it'll probably be in where Tokyo, so maybe you want to check out the site before then if you're watching this uh, while we're out of town. Yes, I'm uh, interested in seeing more pictures of the actual graphs you generate with this and so on. Mm-hmm. That is awesome. But, yeah, definitely take a look at that if you'd like to set that up. I may mm-hmm. have to give that a whirl. Man, there's just not enough time I know. to do all these things. You know, you guys think you know, we're all BSD experts and we have time to do everything. We don't. There's a lot of this stuff I see, and I'm like, that looks really cool. I wish I, I had love a to do hour that. to sit down and play with something like that. So uh, you guys make me jealous. But, anyway, this is really cool. Check it out if you do have the time, and you can mess around with that. Okay, so what's this next study we have here? All the way from back from 89. What's going on, Alan? This is an empirical study of the reliability of Unix utilities. Hmm, okay. Uh, Which was done by AT&T and uh, Wisconsin University. Uh, And so basically they took uh, all the, you know, basic shell command line utilities that are built into Unixes back in the day uh, and uh, FUDS tested them. Basically they wrote a little program that would inject various streams of uh, gibberish into these programs and see what happens to them. Interesting. Okay. All right. So uh, they wrote, you know, fuzz, which generates random input strings, and then uh, the PTY jig, which is a for testing interactive programs. So it pretends to be a user and, you know, just... Mashes on the keyboard. Roll your face across the keyboard, basically. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then they wrote some scripts to automate the tests and ran the tests and saw what happened. Basically, looking for programs that crash, programs that hang, or programs that actually work properly. Hmm. Okay. And so uh, they tested a couple of different machines. So they had a DEC VAC Station 3200, uh, which has a CVAX processor and was running uh, 4.3 BSD plus NFS. They had a Sun 4 slash 110, which was, had a Spark processor and was running SunOS 3.2. And they also ran the same machine, but with SunOS 4.0 with NFS to compare the difference between the two. Mm-hmm. They had uh, uh, an HP Bobcat 9320 and 330, uh, which have slightly different processors. And they ran 4.3 BSD plus NFS on those, but also with the System 5 shared memory support. Which was a new feature back then, apparently. Hmm. Then they had a Citrix 8386, which is an i386 processor, and they ran uh, SCO Xenix uh, System 5 release three, uh, 2.3.1. Uh, then they had an IBM RTPC, which ran on a ROMP processor, and had AOS hmm. Unix. 
and then uh, an IBM PS280, which is an i386 with AIX 1.1 1 .1 Unix, and nice. a uh, Se Sequenti Symmetra, which is an i386 running Dynex 3.0. You have to remember, this is all pre like 1991, the start of of NetBSD and and FreeBSD and so on. So a lot of these are like you know they have the stock Berkeley one and then some commercial Unixes. Mm. They say uh, the test coverage covered a total of 88 utilities for the seven different u versions of Unix. Uh, most utilities were tested on each system, although a couple of them didn't work or didn't exist. Uh, so you can see each utility here is listed and then shows the different uh, OS or machine type. Um, and the different character there indicates what happened when they ran it through the fuzzer. Uh, they have, right. uh, if it's a black dot, it means the utility crashed. You can see there's quite a bit of crashing going on. Uh, the white circle means that it uh, hung. A star indicates that it crashed on SunOS 3.2, but not on SunOS 4.0, which means an improvement. Uh, the kind of circle with the plus sign in it means it crashed on SunOS 4, but not on 3.2, which means a regression. <laughs> regression. <laughs> and a dash means the utility doesn't actually exist on that version of the system. And an exclamation mark say the utility managed to crash the entire operating system. <laughs> oh, even better. Yay. <laughs> yeah. I think there's only one of those. But, uh, yeah, you can see they have quite a few commands, some of which don't actually exist anymore. Some you've heard of, like, you know, grep and join and LaTeX and lint. Uh, but, you know, a, a couple of these I don't think exist anymore. Sure. Uh, but basically they ran them through... Uh, all kinds of stuff. Oh, yeah, here's more utilities. You know, make, mail, M4, more, plot, you know, uh, split, mm -hmm. SQL, strings, telnet, W, WC. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody managed to crash WC. That's good. No, that's cool. That's cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, and they show that. Very well written. You know, each OS, uh, they managed to crash about 25% of the apps on them, except for, uh, oops, I didn't see which OS this column is. I think it's HP. Yeah, the HP managed to crash about 33%. Mm. And it was the, uh, oops, missed it here, the sequent one where they actually managed to crash the entire system when they tried to uh, run, I think that was refer. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I'm not sure what the refer utility did back then, but. No idea. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, they tried uh, injecting printable and non-printable characters with some null characters at uh, 1,000 bytes, 10,000 bytes, and 100,000 bytes. Then they did printable characters with null bytes, and then both printable, not printable, and printable with and without null bytes. Mm -hmm. uh, and tried all the different versions of that uh, and uh, ran all these utilities. Very cool. So this is... Uh, Definitely interesting. It's you know they talk about some of the differences between the what the processor makes a difference in some of the cases and so on, uh, and what they managed to break and so on. Okay. Uh, and some of them they they categorized uh, when they actually did get crashes they categorized them by what caused it, uh, which is also interesting, uh, and so on. Uh, and then what's interesting about this is you know fuzz testing is still finding problems in some of these programs that you wouldn't think of looking at right uh i wonder how many of those bugs have persisted over all this time yeah i don't know but every once in a while we still find new ones and uh you know uh we've seen uh 
recently, actually, quite a few uh, fixes coming up through uh, using a program called AFL or American Fuzzy Lop, uh, which is a program that I think it looks at the source code to generate a list of the places in the source code it wants to test. So mm. instead of just banging output at uh, the input, it actually you know attempts to cause you know this variable to be get set to an invalid value and see what happens in the program and so on. Sure. And find more of these crashes and let the uh, let them get fixed ahead of time before they cause a problem. But yeah, they have uh, details about all the different causes, you know, race conditions, signed characters versus unsigned characters, and uh, undetermined errors and so on. Hmm. So you know, if you're new to Unix and don't want to make all the same mistakes, uh, it's definitely a good place to read and get started from. Okay. Well, cool. Mm -hmm. Hey, I know we mentioned Google Summer of Code, and it's time to get uh, ideas out there so we can get prepped for it. So it looks like both uh, FreeBSD and NetBSD are going to be organizations participating this yep. year. They're going to be running the 2016 Google Summer of Code projects. And we have a couple dates to go along with that. Mm -hmm. So students, you can start submitting proposals on March 14th. So that's a little less than two weeks from yeah, right now. The Monday we get back from Tokyo. Yeah, so don't delay. You won't, you know, uh, have a lot of time. So start thinking of that about those things now, because I think what do they give you like a week and a half to do the proposal? I think I, I remember think it being a short like window. Um, just a reminder, you know, conferences love to have Google Summer of Code students come out and present. I know that's true. Last year at AJBSDCon, I think at least two Google Summer of Code students got free trips to Tokyo to come and tell us about the work they did. Mm -hmm. You know, so. Well, Keep that in mind. Yeah. You can turn that into doing stuff all throughout the rest of next year, too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's going to be awesome. So, of course, in the meantime, if you still have ideas, I guess, for FreeBSD or NetBSD, um, go ahead and post them to their respective places. We have a link to the FreeBSD wiki here where they're mm -hmm. updating it with a summer code ideas. So get yeah. that info out now so students can start looking at that and finding things that might be a good fit for them and finding mentors, etc. You know, get get that all thought out now. That way yeah. you're not scrambling at the last second because a well-thought-out one, you're going to have a much better shot of getting accepted. Yeah, so there's a list of ideas if you're looking for something to work on. Uh, and there's, uh, Most of those include a list of people who you should talk to if you're interested. Uh, you know, like adding uh, SCSI parameters pass-through to uh, CTL so that you can do that. Uh, so that if you're doing the cam target layer uh, stuff, you can actually pass through to existing SCSI without having to do translation. Uh, sure. This would allow for exporting DVD or tapes uh, as iSCSI targets. Hmm. I can definitely see some use to exporting tape drives via iSCSI. Uh, that's so, interesting. Yeah. Uh, if you're uh, interested, they have the contact for a person to talk to and uh, it lists, you know, what level of skill you need. So if you know that, you know, requiring advanced C is... is uh, more than what you're ready to do, then you can look for one of the other uh, ones that doesn't require as much. Okay. And there's uh, lots of projects on here, but if you have ideas, especially, you know, things that don't require advanced C, uh, mm -hmm. you should definitely throw them in here uh, and, you know, volunteer to be a mentor. I know Great. people that have uh, done it in the past said that even being a mentor, they've learned a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it provides a different perspective and so on. Well, definitely check that out. We're looking forward to uh, finding out what the uh, final projects are going to end up being. Of course, we'll, we'll bring that to you live on the show mm -hmm. down the road when that gets announced. And yes. uh, hopefully a lot of them are successful this year. Yes. 
Okay, so next up, Dragonfly. Looks like a high availability sync for IPFW, I guess, 3. Yes. In this case, is landed in Dragonfly. So this is similar to PF Sync. This new protocol is going to allow firewall dynamic rules to, uh, state to be synchronized between two firewalls that are working together, for example, in a high availability with a CARP. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, so this is uh, Bill Yuan did this over the Chinese New Year, mm-hmm. uh, and he built this feature, and basically you set it up, you create your uh, edges and your center machine, and they will the center machine will basically broadcast its state tables out to the edges, and uh, if the center machine goes down, CARP fails over all the traffic to the edge, and the edge just lets the traffic continue to work. Uh, normally, if you don't have this, if you have a stateful firewall where you, you know, you're allowed a connection out and normally you don't allow anything coming in but if it's the reply to something that went out you want to allow it back in if you fail over to the other firewall and the other firewall doesn't have this dynamic state rule saying oh you know machine number three inside the LAN actually requested this we should let it in it starts blocking stuff and you know if your router goes down and everybody's internet goes out and they only they have to make all new connections that's not really as clean as the silent the failover where they wouldn't even notice anything changed uh, and so that adds this, although it doesn't yet do the NAT state, apparently. Uh, the lib alias that uh, FreeBSD and Dragonfly use for uh, in-kernel NAT needs uh, some modernization before it can support this. Okay. So hopefully we can see that happen. And uh, yeah, apparently yeah. also the sync stuff uh, should be fairly straightforward to port back to FreeBSD, which would be good. It's basically the only real feature that IPFW is missing uh, when compared to PF. Nice. Well, that is mm-hmm. pretty cool. We'll, of course, keep an eye on that. I'd like to see that ported back yeah. since I've always been an IPFW fan. Yes, me too. <laughs> okay, well, great. Well, of course, uh, we'll keep you up to date with it if and when that lands in current. Okay, we got a bunch of beastie bits to get to and some feedback and questions. But of course, really quick before we do that, the last sponsor this week, which is going to be Tarsnap, where you can go to tarsnap.com slash BSD now. And before we get finished with the first story in the next segment, you'll probably have an account created and mm-hmm. be ready to go. So, of course, they make it super simple. If you already know how to use the tar command, you're 90% of the way there. It's not going to be a very steep learning yes. curve at all. You can download a client straight from the site. He's got binaries for just about everything. Of course, if you're super paranoid, hey, you can build it yourself. Source yeah. code's available too. How many backup programs do that? Exactly. You can verify, audit, and confirm that it's doing exactly what it promises to do, no more, no less. And because we don't trust binaries, we can heck, build it ourselves to make sure it's doing exactly that. So uh, check out Tarsnap. There's hardly anybody out there who can even offer anywhere close to what that is. Yeah. So, uh, of course, and it's dirt cheap as well. Heck, this- dollars come on. The, the sign-up button now has rounded corners and a drop shadow. Ooh, ooh, wow. Wow, we, uh, we are really Getting rock and roll fancy now. now. <laughs> there might even be some HTML5 that shows up in the next 10 years. This is crazy. <laughs> this yeah. is really cool. But uh, definitely check it out. I mean, the it's, beautiful thing is you don't have to go to the website. I mean, once you get it set up, you throw it in cron, it just keeps running and yeah. doing its thing. And every now and then you'll check to see how much you've spent or whatever. I, but, I uh, get my invoice and it keeps telling me that, you know, 
you'll have to pay Colin again in 10 years. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's not going to take a, take a lot of money to keep it rolling. Of course, it's going to dedupe all your data. So if you're just backing up the same stuff over and over and over again, which is what I do, it's uh, going to be very small. So definitely get it set up today. You'll yank yeah. yourself down the road when you do have that data loss or you know flood or tornado or fire or you live in the Bay Area, you know, the big one finally hits. Come mm -hmm. on, make sure everything's backed up off-site. Yep. And uh, I've also heard rumors of release candidate for Tarsnap 1.0.37. So if you want to check out the news version, uh, you okay. can do that. And unlike previous backup program, uh, you know, any other backup program, you can diff the version you're using and the new version and see exactly what's changed. Nice. Right? You don't, get that without, you don't get that without source code. That's right. That's right. So definitely check it out today, folks. No reason not to. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Beastie Bits. So first up, a couple heads up. We'll go through these rapid fire. Uh, FreeBSD 10.3 Beta 3 is now available. We okay. have a link to the uh, announcement on the mailing list there. Yep, you got your regular AMD 64 and i386, uh, as well as you know i64, PowerPC, PowerPC 64, Spark 64, but also ARMv6 images for BeagleBone, uh, QBox, hmm. Hummingboard, Gumsticks, PandaBoard, Raspberry Pi B, and OneBoard. Nice. Okay, definitely check that out. So uh, also next up, we have a Libra SSL. Turns out not affected by yet another bug. In this mm -hmm. case, the OpenSSL drown attack. Yes. We have a link to the Undeadly site with some details about that. Yes, uh, all the support for SSL v2 was thrown out of Libra SSL a while ago, so this particular uh, problem cannot occur. Nice. Okay, so uh, NetBSD machines at the Open Source uh, Conference 2016 in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. Hey, man, we just missed that. But it looks like uh, we'll have a link to the the uh, mailing list here. Do they have more pictures? I assume, or they have a uh, list. Let's see they have a list of things there. Machines, which is oh, they have yeah, they have pictures as well oh, on uh, yep. a couple different sites here. But uh, you know, usual suspects. We got Raspberry Pis, Banana Pies, uh, Tech, QB boards, some Sharps. I saw an Orange Pie. Oh, okay. So we got some Plat Home Open Blocks, uh, Rock Chip, uh, Radza Rock, okay, and some Via different things. But yeah, there's, heck, of course, NetBSD runs on them all, which yep. is pretty stinking awesome. I hope, uh, I think June, I think he comes to Asia BSDCon. You guys should yep. bring some more of those things out. Mm -hmm. I'd love to get pictures of those in person. That would be fun. Yeah, they do all these booths at non-BSD conferences at the BSD one, you know. There's, yeah, yeah, bring it to the BSD conference. We want Nick to see was too. there, but yeah, you know, lots of people be interested in looking at all these little devices, I think. Okay. So next up, we have OpenBSD. Uh, looks like they uh, hacked and slashed their way and got rid of the Linux emulation. So mm -hmm. don't need that anymore on OpenBSD. Yeah, yes. and I wish we didn't need it on FreeBSD, too. I mean, well, it's easy uh, to have, but... On, on OpenBSD, it was more that theirs was still only i386. Mm. Uh, and it was based on a really old Fedora. Uh, sure. And so they decided to just, uh, just get rid of it. Done with it. Yeah. That is true. Yeah, mm -hmm. I look forward to the day when we don't need it either. But hey, you know, sometimes you do. Yeah, well, you know, if the rest of the world would just make portable apps. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Okay, so it looks like George Neville Neal did a uh, Time is an Illusion. Mm -hmm. Is this a talk here? Is there a video associated? No, uh, this is just an article for the ACMQ oh, magazine. Okay. But nice. basically talking about the, you know, keeping the time synced on your computer. And there's two different major aspects for that. There's the synchronization, which is your clock showing the same time as the other computer at the same time. Uh, but also syntonization, which is uh, your clock not getting off course after it's been synced. 
Sure. You know, and okay. uh, he's got some fancy graphics. Uh, if you look at his precision time protocol log graph of uh, how far off the computer was over time. Uh, and you can see that, you know, inside your computer, there's actually a little quartz crystal that regulates everything. And it costs about 10 cents and everything in your computer is based on it. Right. Uh, figure. And sadly, because it's a physical crystal, it's affected by things like heat and a uh, list of other things. <laughs> can really make quite a difference. Mm-hmm. Okay. Lastly here, we have uh, OpenSSH 7.2 is landed as well. Mm -hmm. We have a link to the notes for that. It looks like uh, they say it's primarily a bug fix release, so a couple security things. Uh, looks like some new features did land, though. Yep. Uh, they have a deprecation warning here. Uh, mm -hmm. In the next version of OpenSSH, uh, RSA keys smaller than 1024 bits will not be allowed. Uh, okay. Currently, the minimum is 768. But if you have anything less than uh, 1024, you'll need to switch that. Otherwise, next upgrade, your keys will stop working. It's like they're going to be, uh, this release does disable a number of legacy uh, algorithms as well. So it looks like several ciphers, uh, Blowfish CBC, Cast128 CBC, all the ARC4 variants, and the uh, Rindal uh, CBC aliases for AES. So hmm. things to get nuked. It's interesting to see Blowfish going away. I would have expected that one to still be there. but uh, And they're also getting rid of the MD5-based and truncated HMAC algorithms, which is a good mm -hmm. thing. Good. Uh, uh, apparently, these have already been disabled by default in SSHG for a while. They're just sure. having the code completely removed now. Oh, good. Yep. Good to see. Okay, so that's the Beastie Bits for the mm -hmm. week. So let's get into feedback and questions. And we're going to be starting with Shane this week. Mm -hmm. He writes in about IPSec. He says, hey, guys, keep up the great show, even if it is only once a week. Well, we will be glad to do that. Uh, he says, a couple weeks ago, somebody asked about an IPSec tutorial as there hasn't been an update. And I thought I would share the little that I know. The handbook includes chapter 13.7 about VPN over IPSec. The bad news is it's not supported in the generic kernel, so you need to build your own. And he shows the example of how you can add that by doing a, a new IPsec uh, mm -hmm. config file and then just including generic. And then, uh, of course, do your make build kernel, kernconf equals IPsec, install kernel equals kernconf IPsec. And then, of course, you can package install IPsec tools. He said, I'm still in the idea phase. I haven't tried to get this working. And he says, while the handbook says both sites need a gateway running FreeBSD, I expect the range of consumer routers that support VPN pass-throughs should allow this to work from an internal machine. Mm -hmm. yep. So I think uh, we mentioned this before the show, IPsec got turned on. I did check that. It, it is, is by, default by default on in 11. I don't know if yeah. that got backported to 10 or not. Hmm, I don't know. But uh, it is coming. Yes. So at some point, so, yes, be on uh, by default. And by this summer, every new release will have it. Maybe 10.3 will. I don't actually know. Uh, okay. Basically, if it's in the release candidates now, or the betas now, then it will be. And if it's not, then it won't be. Uh, sure. Because that's, uh, you know, hopefully 10.3 uh, can recover from its kind of... Yeah, if you're, if you're watching this some significant point in the future down the road, then by that point, hopefully it's just yes. on. You don't even have to worry about those steps anymore, which is yep. good. Uh, there was, the main reason it wasn't on by default is because it made things slower. But the uh, after... Trojan Neville Neal's project of measuring it and figure, using DTrace to figure out why, uh, they fixed most of it, and it's not really any slower now, and so why not use it? Sure. It's just the convenience of not yes. having to recompile the kernel. I mean, exactly. I'd like to get to the point where everything's just a kernel module, and there's almost no reason to ever recompile yep. by hand. Um, pretty much do that now. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, IPsec was one of the only things that would the holdouts. That well, Alt Q is the other one for me. Like right. Not having Alt Q support for PF, but still, it's getting there. It's mm-hmm. getting there. Although vImage, when that goes on by default, that'll be another one yeah. as well. Uh, all those things will be set. Yes. Yes. Okay, you want to read the yes, next one? So uh, Daryl writes in and says, Hello, Alan and Chris. I sent in an email about a 14-terabyte server I built that was having a problems with read and write speeds. Turns out his high point Rocket Raid 30, uh, 2320 uh, was hiding smart data from one of the Western Digital green drives, which was mm, failing. Uh, when he ran Smart CTL, it would not give him any usable data. I moved all the drives off the high point card under the motherboard's uh, SATA ports, and everything just worked. I found the bad hard drive and did a ZFS replace or ZPool replace, uh, and it was it took forever, about one megabyte per second, because the drive was dying. Uh, but once he removed the bad drive and the resilver uh, finished at full speed, uh, he was able to adjust his pool, and uh, now everything is fast again. Nice. So okay. that's another one of the downsides to using a RAID card is they often will try to hide the errors from the thing because back in the day, if Windows saw an error from the disk, it would freak out. Sure. <laughs> and so RAID cards stopped hi- started hiding those errors and trying to solve them internally. Uh, and, you know, to avoid scaring the user with errors about data corruption or whatever. The problem is ZFS actually wants to know about that sure. so that, you know, it says, oh, this one drive is having an error. If it gets too many of those, I'm going to automatically offline it and run off the redundancy so that the system doesn't just grind to a halt. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, uh, you know, if you have direct set of ports or use an HBA instead of a RAID card, you'll have much better results. Well, cool. Hey, he says, I'm also working at replacing all my Windows computers with PCBSD and servers with FreeBSD. So that's awesome. Good job. Yeah, glad to hear that. Let us know how that goes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so who we got last here? We mm-hmm. have... Uh, Pedja writes in about Pedja. ZFS setup. He says, hi, uh-huh. I have a FreeBSD VM, which I plan to use uh, as a salt minion at some point. For now, I have it as a sandbox to play with and learn FreeBSD. And there's a lot to learn. Uh, so his question is, uh, he's currently tracking the Dash stable branch and building and updating the system is pretty straightforward thanks to the handbook. But checking for broken missing libraries after the update is somewhat confusing. What is the proper slash blessed way to do this? Uh, he says, I ran libcheck as recommended by the handbook and it spewed out a list of stuff on reference libraries in lib, user lib, and user local lib. Uh, but package underscore libcheck or package dash check uh, minus BA and package dash check under DNA uh, haven't found anything. Uh, so I guess the handbook needs to be updated. Uh, it's package space check now. So those are part of the package command and not no longer part of the old uh, package underscore tools. Uh, and I don't know that the flags are the same, so you want to read the man page for package dash uh, package check mm-hmm. uh, or run package help check uh, from the command line and it will give you the man page. Uh, he says the libcheck man page does warn it might have false positives though. So after you do the update, is if you did the make delete old or whatever it's called, it should remove most of the unreferenced libraries in your slash lib and user lib. Uh, and that should help. Um, then he says, so using synth, which is an awesome tool, he says, I've updated the system and everything works fine as far as I can tell. He says, I currently the system has a ZFS pool made of a single disk VDEV, mm-hmm. and I'd like to migrate to RAID Z1 or RAID Z2. What are your options? In that case, you would have to build the new pool and then ZFS send uh, to it. Yeah. Um, if you wanted to switch to mirrors, you can use the zpool attach command to add a second disk to the existing one and turn it into a mirror 
and then you can just keep using the pool you have. Uh, but you know, mirroring doesn't give you the same space efficiency, so it's up to you. Sure. Um, Let's see. He talks about uh, cloning, doing the admin. Yeah. So basically, yeah. You answered that. Uh, so what you'd want to do is take a recursive snapshot of the entire pool. So just ZFS snapshot minus R Z root, uh, mm -hmm. and at and then, I don't know, relocate or whatever, and then ZFS send that piped into ZFS receive on the new pool, and you're all good. Cool. He also asks, is FreeBSD ZFS implementation based on the OpenZFS project? Yes. So, yeah, it is. So he asks if uh, ZFS on BSD and Linux should have reasonable feature parity interoperability. That's yes. uh, the, the idea. The Linux one is sometimes slightly further behind, but in general, yes. Uh, so... Basically, uh, when you update versions of the FreeBSD and when you run zpool status and it says, oh, you, there's features you're not using and run zpool upgrade, if you plan to use the pool with Linux, uh, don't do that right away. Yeah, uh, make lot. sure that those features are supported by Linux or the version of Linux you're using, at least, uh, before you update. And then uh, as long as you don't get too far ahead, uh, it's compatible. Uh, each of the flags also will, have a, will indicate whether it's read-only compatible or not. Some of them, mm -hmm. if you enable it, uh, you'll still be able to read the data sets, but any data sets that use the new feature, you won't be able to write to on Linux. Uh, but it depends. You know, uh, if, say, a new compression algorithm comes out, uh, then any data sets using it, you won't be able to read on Linux until Linux gets support for that. But in general, yes, they're compatible, and you can move a pool between uh, Illumos, FreeBSD, Linux, and the OpenZFS on OSX project. So you'll be able to use it across all the operating systems except Windows. Okay. He said, also, thanks for all the hard work you put into making BSD now. He mm -hmm. says, TechSnap is also cool, by the way, Alan. It's fun to watch, and I actually learned something from it, which is pretty rare these days. Well, great. Well, we appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, of course, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Mm -hmm. So, we want to remind you, we're going to be gone a week. So, uh, yep. keep the questions, comments, or if you have stories you find, be sure to send those in. We're going to be pretty darn busy when we're out at uh, Asia BSDCon. So, try and get those all sent in. And, of course, we'll sift yes. through them all when we get back and mm -hmm. prepare for the episode immediately following where we can uh, share all those stories. And, of course, our stories we have from uh, being in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. And we'll look forward to talking to you about that uh, live in a couple weeks. So, of course, send those to feedback at bsdnow.tv. That's the only place we monitor, so just keep sending them there. If you don't get a reply, don't worry. We're probably just super tired and busy from yep. being out all night and doing fun BSD stuff, but we promise we will get to them. So, of course, thanks for watching this week, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you same time in a few weeks. Yes. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>